I had these huge dreams in my heart about being a singer and a songwriter and doing something meaningful with my life. And then I didn't see anyone my size out there doing that. I was terrified that, you know, I had to be thin first before I let people hear my songs. Hi everyone, I'm Nikki Brigger, editor of Murray Claire, and welcome to the latest edition of the Finding Fearless with Murray Claire podcast. Our series is all about women who've faced challenges and overcome the odds to live bigger and richer lives, and today's guest lives up to that mantra. Back in 2006, Claire Bowditch was the darling of the Australian music scene, winning the aria for Best Female Artist for her soulful singing. And the aria goes to... Claire Bowditch! Then six years later, she was the darling of Australian TV, playing the popular muso Rosanna on the small screen mega hit Offspring. This year, she's added another string to her bow, having written an extraordinary memoir, Your Own Kind of Girl, which has everyone talking. But this book has nothing to do with the famous stuff. At the heart of this book is the stories we tell ourselves as young girls, the voices that we let in our heads telling us that we're just not good enough, that we should be smarter, braver, louder, thinner, always bloody thinner, that we should be better daughters, sisters, mothers, wives. This is the story of every woman and we love it. For anyone who's ever battled with that inner critic and believed that real life only begins when you're thin and beautiful, then Claire Bowditch is the woman we've all been waiting for. And let me tell you, she's worth the wait. We have a special guest host for this episode, our deputy editor, Mel Gordron, who read the book in one sitting and became her number one fan. So over to Mel and Claire. Claire Bowditch. Welcome to Finding Fearless with Marie Claire. <laughs> I'm so excited to be here. It's very cosy and it's good to be here with you. Can I just say, what a treat to be able to have conversations like this. Thank you for making this podcast. Fantastic. And we are, could not be happier to have you here. First confession, I'm a late comer to the Claire Bowditch fan club. Uh, it's fine. No, really. Well, I think when you were being the ARIA award-winning uh, singer, I was probably pumping out kids and in some wiggles hell somewhere. So I understand. Yes. How many do you have? Three, just like you. At what ages? But all, um, they're all teenagers, boy, but they're all boys. Wow, well, Mum. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good, good woman. Yeah. But mind you, when you were having babies, mm. you were pumping out your ARIA award-winning hits. So I'm never going to go <laughs> down that comparathon. <laughs> But anyway, but then of course, that was before your book arrived on my desk only recently. And then I became the instant crazy fangirl. It's so funny because I'm just so glad you're still talking to me. There's always a part of our head, our inner critic, whenever we um, put a story, you know, about our own lives out in public, where you're like, sheesh, I wonder if people will still talk to me afterwards. So, you know, just the fact that we're having a conversation, two thumbs up, babe. (laughs) Excellent. We're on our way. Um, So I do want to get back into the book. So really... um, um, a lot of it is about your childhood and your childhood was really marked by something so big that you didn't necessarily even have the words to talk about it for, I'd say, quite some time. So just tell us about your family growing up in suburban Melbourne, yeah? Mm. How many how many kids were there in your family? So I'm the youngest of five. We're all 18 months apart and we used to say, mum used to say it's like decades on a rosary. So I was brought <laughs> up in a very loving um, Dutch, Aussie, Catholic um you know, scramble of a family. Both my parents worked, um, but they were very, very much in love, very much family focused. Mm-hmm. And around the time, um, 
I was about three, they had started to finally build this house where we were all going to live. We grew up in Sandy, Sandringham, Sandringham. Sandy to the locals. That was what I was born into, a big, loving, pretty normal family. And then tell us what happened about with your um, with your darling sister, Rowena. So when I was about three, um, my sister, Rowie, was in prep and she started to become unwell in a mm-hmm. way that was very mysterious. Um, unfortunately, she couldn't... She started bumping into things and she'd be upset um, about not being able to um, explain why she was feeling quite odd until it was discovered too late and very unfortunately, um, despite all the best efforts of all the doctors, all the specialists, um, that she had a terminal disease that was similar to MS basically and she was put Mm -hmm. on a life support machine and lived at the children's hospital for two years. For two years. That's hard for a fam- young, tiny family. I think my parents did a fairly incredible job of holding it together. Yeah. In terms of, I never saw them. <clears throat> I never saw them cry, and I never saw them complain, and I didn't see them angry. You know, at, at the situation. I did see them praying a lot. I did see them accepting, and I, yeah. I remember all the casseroles on the front doorstep. And I remember knowing from community, yeah, from, from the community, from yeah. our local parish, and from the. From the um, neighbours, we had wonderful neighbours, and but it was pretty clear um, when Rowena was admitted to hospital that her she was going to die, and that was just the water that I grew up in. Yeah, and I grew up in this situation where we knew that I was younger, so you know my job was to tap dance and sing and make sure that everyone had a yeah. good old time of it, <laughs> um, and I knew something very serious was going on, and I had no language to express it. And I was very, very lucky to be held in that um, very protective and as much, you know, routined as possible with my brothers, my sisters, my mum taking the day shift with Rowena and often myself in there and my father going in at night. And we had as normal a life as you could have in that situation. Um, but you being um, little, you would have spent a lot of time in... Um in, in the hospital. I sure surely. did. Yeah. yeah, like you went at school or anything during the day. No, and I, I did eventually start kinder at right. age four, but I um, I was still in there, you know, many times a week and you get to know each other. Um, you get to, you know, the, we get to know the nurses pretty well and the environment pretty well and we we're always so grateful for the care that Rowena got. But yeah. at the same time, what I was always aware of is that I got to go home and she had to stay overnight Yeah, in, in those days. Um, yeah, well, when I, you were little I, yeah, as well. Yeah, I, I was little. I was grateful for um, knowing, you know, my place in it all and having um, the hope that my sister was going somewhere that was, you know, that was a good place for her. But it was yeah. just a lot to be carrying around as a kid. And Well, I think what, it, what did happen to you, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that w- what happens to little kids who are grieving anyway is that they end up – so when, you're, when your sister um, eventually died – it was like you almost, you, um, well, weirdly to outsiders would mm. think, oh, no, this is somehow it's my fault or yeah. I should have been able to save her. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because I, I tell that story now. That was exactly right. Um, I remember the bad feeling in, in me. I called mm. it the bad feeling. And I remember mm. this, I didn't realise till a lot later that that guilt, that horrific guilt that we feel is just a classic normal sibling response. Grief makes vessels of all of us, most especially of children, and it's common for adults too, but we carry within us 
for me, this guilt, which made her feel close in a way that there's something I could have done that I didn't do. And, you know, that became a driving narrative in my mind, really, about, you know, this guilt. Yeah, this guilt. Why did I live? And why did she not live? Questions that you can't answer at the best of times, let alone when you're you're three. And then six and seven, and it Mm. just sort of carried on. And and I suppose it's also about like the fact that you're sad and and you can't identify that as sadness. And so it's all 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 those same kind of feelings that you have when something so tragic occurs in your life. And you can't – adults struggle to name the feelings that they're feeling in that instance, let alone little kids. And then you also want to protect your parents. I remember that in in the book you said that um, you made a deal with yourself that your mum would be okay as long as – um, you made sure that nothing bad ever happened to you, and that yeah. you'd need to be very careful always. Yes. What, what kind of that, that that must have put pressure on you for a little kid to have that? I can't do anything. It's a good little recipe for anxiety. Isn't yeah. It? So basically, what you know, I would say that um, as is a fairly again a, quite a common response. I became very much focused on um, making sure that my parents were not having to worry about me. But I had this anxious thought, that yeah. a series of anxious thoughts in my mind that I tried to keep to myself and I developed a habit of managing them through, you know, some techniques. And one of those techniques, um, which is unfortunate given the society we, we grow up in as women, one of my techniques was overeating and it meant I was this fun little chubby little child. You'll see her on the cover of... She looks bloody gorgeous I want to I want to eat her up (laughs) you're on the cover of the book a photo that my sister took and you know I'd sort of wax and wane between true confidence and then um really feeling crushed under the teasing at school for a feeling that I wasn't the right size none of my siblings were big I was just sort of wired for it I was I grew up in a environment where my body went we're gonna hang on to that little friend you know in case there's a a rainy day, but you know this is this is one of the fantastic things about your book is that it just nails women's relationship, crazy relationship with food and how it's tied up with emotions and your past and your history and trying to control like all of these other things that are actually outside of your control. You don't have a sense that you can control it. You said um, something really, (laughs) which I think will resonate, where you said, my whole life, my mum's been in my ear about it's not about what's on the outside that counts, it's your inside. Meanwhile, the world tells me different and its terms are very clear. First as a girl, then as a woman, my best chance for success is to be thin or get thin and then for fuck's sake to stay thin. This was your experience, even from, like, as I said, a really young age when you first, so you end up going on your first diet when you were 10 years old. Well, by the time I was 10, uh, I was pretty tired of, you know, I, I'd bought into this, um, I'd made it quite a clear decision, didn't know it was clear, but looking back, it was quite clear that instead of being teased, I would become very funny, you know, I, th- yeah. I, I say in the book that they say the best training for a stand-up comet is comic is to be a fat kid um, in childhood and have to survive that. And that was my experience. So I sort of bought into the nom nom, here she comes. And, you know, I got called Fatty Boomba was my nickname. But by the time I was 10, the othering became too much. And yeah. I started to, I went into um, a clothing store and I had to buy women's clothes. There were no children's clothes that would fit me. 
And I just said to my mum, you know, my parents never mentioned my weight. They protected me from other people who mentioned the weight. My mother was constantly saying, but darling, you're so beautiful. You know, yeah, just no. She would say, yeah. you're my peach, you're my Amazon. <laughs> and she'd say, you know, it's your insides that count. And yeah. anyone who matters knows that. But it was it was cruel. And I said, mum, I'm done. I'd heard about this thing called a diet. And she finally agreed to take me to a diet doctor. And I was put on a hugely restrictive diet. I was sort of um, weighed, measured, and this doctor was trying his very best to yeah. help this kid that I was. Um, he pointed to the wall. To, he said on the chart, a BMI chart, this is obese and this is where you are. And I didn't know what the word meant, but I knew it wasn't a good yeah, thing. Yeah, it wasn't good. So, yeah. <laughs> You're so unreal. He, said, he said, if you do what I say, you will. this problem will be solved. And I said, all right. You yeah. know, and I went home that summer and I did exactly what he said, um, which was to eat very little, basically. Yeah, but then, but then you came. Like this is another part that I find really interesting. Is then you came back to school. You'd also grown, like as little girls do, they yeah. grow. So you grow, you'd grown taller. You'd lost weight, and then you got all these accolades, especially from female teachers, the other mums, yeah. like who like just wanted copies of your diet basically because they, they could see yeah. how yeah. successful it was So it was you. a really, really um, interesting learning at a young age. And, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not here to pass judgment on the times that we lived in and the lack of education we had about mental health and mm. body size or about, um, you know, our role in society as women and the stories that we eat, <laughs> we eat down about who we're supposed to be. Mm. But to be honest, it was shocking. It was acute. Um, I and I friggin' loved the praise to <laughs> yeah, be accepted. Yeah. You know, I didn't know what this warm feeling was when, <laughs> when you know, Mrs. C's um, or you know, Mrs. C would come over on that first day back and say to me, "I had no idea you were so beautiful," oh, no. and to have the teacher at school say, "Who's a new girl?" <laughs> and to have the librarian not recognise me and you know squeal in delight that, "Oh my gosh, yeah. Claire Bowditch, is that you?" You know, and that I still you know remember the excitement of feeling accepted, and then I remember over time it dawning on me that there was something wrong, yeah, with this society that we're in you know it was very quickly afterwards but even that confusing element of um and I think you said something like it in the book that um it, you realized really quickly yeah but I haven't changed I'm still I'm the, the same, same person, person but how come I'm all of a sudden worth so what? much more to in everybody else's eyes just because you know you were you were thin like that must have been so confusing but at the time I remember thinking there's something wrong with this and I know there's something wrong with this but being thin is easier than being fat. And even though it's challenging, even even as an 11-year-old, I said, I'm just going to do whatever I can to make sure I never get fat again. Well, as you said also, like life's easier when you fit the clothes on the rack. I think that was a direct quote. And it's That's so – it, it, like <laughs> any woman listening to this would know ain't that the truth, you know. Um, as You know, that's the unfortunate reality. But – this started, of course, the roller coaster of diets, as is so often the case. And you ended up what a size like twenty four or something at nineteen, I think. Yeah. And um, and as a result, I think this is when the voice in your head that started after Lil Rowie died, and of her, and the voice was, "You've been, you're a bad person. This is why this happened." Yeah. Turned harsher and more personal, and about you know, you're just fat and useless and you can't do anything and yeah. is that is that correct? Yeah, so I had no idea that the 
the bad feeling I had was just a feeling that it wasn't actually me. Mm -hmm. I was actually still getting quite a bit of comfort in this hope that one day I'll be thin and when and I'm thin, everything, everything will everything will be everything better. Everything will be fine. <laughs> and, you know, who can blame me? Because my, that had been my experience at that point. So at 19, um, you know. But it's also because you then, when thing, bad things happen to you, you you point the finger at your yeah, way. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Like it becomes this convenient yeah. um, um, trap, a story to yourself where you're like, oh, if only I was thinner, <laughs> then then X would happen or Y would happen, and you don't. Yeah. It become it, it becomes like just a fallback. That yeah, yeah. It is both um, true on the one hand and an absolute lie on the other. An absolute. Mm. Um, mm. And I guess one of the main reasons I really wrote this book is to help give women language through which to stop dismissing themselves because of the stories they tell themselves, you know, about their size and what's possible for them, what's not possible for them. Um, we have a society where, you know, again, we live in a um, a corporate-driven society uh, where the story is um, there's something wrong with you and we've got the answer and yeah. here it is. And that's just commerce, you know, yeah. 101 really. Yeah. But and it's about optimization. You know, you can't. You <laughs> yeah, never yeah. actually. You're not enough. You need yeah. to be better. You yeah. need to be. You know. You and need... we pick that up, and it plays Completely. with our survival brain. That brain that says we must stay alive and we must fit in with society. And when that intersects with our diet, um, with our body size, with mm. our natural propensity to, as I explain, our piano accordion bodies as women, <laughs> which I really think we need to embrace. Our, our bodies, for so many of us, our bodies are larger and smaller, and and yeah. they change throughout the course of our lives. Why do we why do we fight that? I, you know, I no longer fight it. It is what it is. But at this point in my my life, I was still carrying the story that when I was thin, I'd be fine. Yeah. And there were a few cracks showing that you mentioned before. I was a t size twenty four by the time I was nineteen and twenty. And the reason I know that is because. I dropped out of uni. Um, I was in a terrible <laughs> relationship. <laughs> I had these huge dreams in my heart about being a singer and a songwriter and mm -hmm. doing something meaningful with my life. And then I didn't see anyone my size out there doing that. I was yeah. terrified that, you know, I had to be thin first before I let people hear my songs. I finally got offered a, a job at a call centre by a family friend <laughs> and I was like, that is not me. You know, I was no sandals, dreads. I'd been woofing, <laughs> um, working on organic farms all around Australia but I thought, look, it's the best chance I've been given for a little while. Yeah. And the only caveat was you had to wear a suit. And this is where I discovered something interesting. There were no suits my size on the racks, none yeah. at all. But I went to a larger lady store in Richmond in Melbourne, and I was really scared to go in. I just felt so awkward. But this woman behind the counter taught me something which helped put a little chink in the armour of, um, you know, unworthiness. She just treated me like a normal person who was in there to buy a suit. She was very kind. Mm. She said, sweetheart, I've got it covered. <laughs> you, you were going to walk out of here feeling a million dollars. And I did. You know, it was, uh, I was a... You know, I was in a suit that was made of rayon and um, – yeah. <laughs> but I felt like a normal person and it was a wonderful feeling and I learned everything I needed to know there about customer service and about the difference between – you know, or about the question of how much of how we feel about our bodies is because of what the world tells us about our bodies and how much is because of what we're telling ourselves. Like I completely agree, but for your story, I feel that like – so. In, in order to kind of like then eventually come to this learning, you had to basically hit 
really rock bottom. Can you ended up in this podcast. <laughs> rock fucking bottom, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen and friends. Oh, holy majoli. Correct. Really, Mondo. truly. So like you, you ended up, um, so I think you split up with the boyfriend and you went, fuck you, I'm going to go to London and I'm going to come back thin because yeah. that will, you know, that will. That will so show you. And you were so committed to it. And you did come back then, but not really for the reasons that, you know, you even could have conjured up in your own brain. So what Mm -hmm. what happened? Well, I found the perfect diet. Uh, (laughs) No, not at all. Um, I was aware, I was starting to become aware that there was something a little dangerous about the way I was speaking to myself. So Mm -hmm. I wrote this long list about all the things I wanted to do. (laughs) I want to write a novel. I want to make music. I want to have children. I want to make a million dollars. I want to help people fit in. I want to change the world. You know, I was really into it. But the voice in my head kept saying, but you can't do these things until you're thin. So off to London I went and... You know, I had a wonderful adventure with my friend Libby, but Mm. I hadn't saved up enough money (laughs) and I was burning the candle at both ends. Um, I'd stopped sleeping enough and I wasn't feeding myself well and all those classic things. But a friend of mine collapsed on the tube and it triggered um, what I now know to be my first acute panic attack. But at the time I was caring for him um, as he'd, you know, I thought he died. Yeah. And my mind really went back to that time with Rowena in the hospital and yeah. all those frightening thoughts and feelings as a child. And I spiraled into insomnia, um, which, and then, you know, basically <laughs> a sharp and quick <laughs> descent into 24 hour panic attacks, um, inability to sleep, to eat, to really function very well at all. And I did not realize what was going on. Yeah. I, thought I had a virus. <laughs> Some virus. Yeah. And I went to the doctor in Oxford. Um, I was shaking all the time. I had been ever since my friend had had collapsed on the tube. And the reason I I mention this is really just to say I had these normal sets of responses, of symptoms of anxiety, shaking hands, um, you know, recurring spiral thoughts, inability Mm. to sleep, inability to eat and so on. Stock standard, but I didn't know what was going on. And if I'd known what was going on, if I'd learned to... Simple technique for, you know, um, being aware of my thoughts and changing the stories I was telling myself. I might have been okay. But it got to the point where my friend Libby um, had to help me get home. Really yeah. had to get me on that As plane. In home to Australia. Yeah, home to Australia. Yep. The doctor, I went to a doctor saying I had a virus and she said, yes, you might well have a virus, my friend, but... Um, <laughs> She said, I think you're also quite depressed. And I said, you have got to be fucking kidding me. I'm the life of the party. I'm not depressed. You know, I didn't want to think about it. The stories I had in my head about mental health were of Virginia Woolf walking into the river with stones in her pockets and and Sylvia Plath from the Bell Jar. I, but I, but I, I think was ignorant that, about mental ill health. But but I, but I think that again, that's the story of so many women that they just they can't identify mm. those um, yeah. those periods as no 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 this is getting really bad now. Like they just because yeah. they already. I mean, I think they just got that natural thing. Oh no no, I just need to pull my socks up and I'll get better kind of thing. And why do we do that? Often it works, you know. But there's a, right. there can be a point in. Our lives, and this is something that we saw in you know post-war situations as well as anywhere else. Um, there comes a time in our lives where we need some help and we need some new techniques. You yeah, know, if we're under acute stress, grief, um, after huge transitions, or if we've just got old stories that we're not getting on top of. So 
when you came back to you came back to Australia, ended up on back at mum and dad's. But you, you managed to find a few little secrets along the way to to get you back on that path to recovery. Um, and the first was the introduction to a book called um, Self Help for Nerves. Self Help for your nerves, <laughs> which sounds like something from nineteen fifty two. It was pretty much. Um, so, uh, what was I going to do? You know, I wasn't. I refused to go to a doctor. Yeah. Um, and I was feeling quite hopeless. Um, but I was chatting to my mum's friends, and two of them really helped me. Um, one said to me that I needed to find some metaphors of hope. Mm-hmm. Why didn't I read? Uh, you know, a couple of books. I said, I can't read anymore. I can't concentrate on the page. It just makes me feel nauseous. Yeah. And she said, why don't you start with children's books? So she gave me a book called um, The Little White Horse. It was just a, a, <laughs> a, ho- a book written by a woman called Virginia Googe. It was simple and it was kind. And I later found out it was a book that J.K. Rowling's was inspired to write Harry Potter, <laughs> you know, based on. Could have been but, you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm glad it wasn't. That's, that's too, yeah. <laughs> too I'm so glad it was her. She was such a beautifully written series. Um, anyway, I mentioned that because that's what stage we were at. And then a second friend suggested this book called Self-Help for Your Nerves. And I thought, oh, dear God. <laughs> it arrived. I sort of, my biggest adventure for the day was going out to the mailbox to see if it had arrived. <laughs> um, and there it was. And I looked at the front cover and on it was this old lady, an older lady, sort of my grandmother's age. Yeah. And her name was Dr. Claire Weeks. <laughs> and she was an, you know, she had this sort of, I listened to her audio books. I read the book. She had this cultivated Australian accent and she spoke directly to me as a sufferer of what she called nervous illness. Well, and it comes to pass. She's this legendary Australian powerhouse of a woman who yeah. just was like actually decades before her time and yes. you just happened to stumble across her little toolkit. Well, what she'd written was this very simple direct book. So everything, I, I'd assumed that in order to recover, I was going to have to spend years on the therapist couch yeah. muckraking and going through what happened with Rowena. And to yeah. be honest, I couldn't go there at yeah. that time. Yeah. It was completely at the front of my mind at all times, but I wasn't ready to process that. What I needed was something that helped me uh, get control of my symptoms of anxiety. And if I hadn't have been so desperate, I would have looked at that book and gone, yeah. <laughs> nah, not for me, you know. But I was. And in it, she wrote a very simple technique. Um, she explained the symptoms of anxiety. She was someone who um, was a pioneer in treating PTSD before we had a name for PTSD. Mm. And even in her time, she was dismissed by the establishment as being too homespun. But the reality was... She was helping people cure their symptoms of nervous illness. She basically said this, your nervous illness is simply, well, fear is simply a response to something that's happened. Mm. Your nervous illness is fear of the fear. The way to cure yourself is simple. Face, accept, float and let time pass. FAFL was the acronym I gave it. So she, she, I trusted her because she explained the symptoms to me. She explained it was just a normal reaction of a healthy nervous system. She mm. explained all of the. Is that reassuring to hear that? It's deeply because reassuring. Because otherwise, you're like, oh my god, my brain, I, I, this, it's, it's, it's beyond repair. Absolutely. Whereas actually hearing that, it's like, oh right, oh we can fix it, you know. And you can fix it quite simply. And I could start that day, which was extraordinary to me. And this is where I twigged to this idea mm. that. 
our, our, our state of mind, you know, we cannot control the circumstances of our lives. I couldn't control my sister's life or death. I can't control the weather. I can't control the bus timetable. Mm. I can't control what you think of me and, you know, many you know circumstances. You. Thanks, both. <laughs> and I, you. But in so, so many circumstances, we can't, you know, we can't control our height or our size and other things. Mm. Here's what we can control. We can't control that first thought, that first fearful thought, but I get to question the second one. You know, life is the stories that we tell ourselves and what happens when we believe them. Yeah. And Dr. Claire Weeks' really simple technique gave me one way to start batting back or talking back to that voice of anxiety. That, that was faffle. Faffle. Face, accept, float and let time pass. She said, you don't get well by sitting at home wallowing. <laughs> you get yeah. well by challenging yourself. So basically she said, go out for a walk. You're going to have those thoughts accept them and keep going anyway. Mm. And that was how slowly, slowly over first days then weeks and then months I was able to recover. Yeah. The second thing um, oh, that you kind of oh, came across or, or, you know, ended up with was um, I think it was just psych, Ron. Yes. Yeah, my psychologist, Ron. Yeah, he basically said, which I love this idea, that um, it shouldn't be called a nervous breakdown, but a breakthrough. That, <laughs> yeah. A breakthrough to finding the life of your dreams. So basically, you had to like kind of hit rock bottom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What Ron reminded me of was, you know, I said, oh, I don't know what's going to become of my life. I had all these dreams and um, it feels like none of them are possible now. And he just encouraged me to, again just take it step by step. So, you know, I knew I wanted to be a singer. Yeah. That was way beyond me. Why don't I start with a small fear? You know, one of my small fears at the time, irrational as it was, was swimming. Mm. Um, okay, we'll start there. So using the techniques, um, you know, the possibility that this lowest point could be a breakthrough yep. point, not a breakdown, which I know Brene Brown's therapist also said to her. So it was popular at the time, therapy school, <laughs> I guess, but it really made it effective. If you can start thinking about it, what if this is a new starting point? What, the, what if this is you allowing yourself to live the life that you want? So, you know, I, I started with small fears and graduated from there. And at a certain point, I stumbled across a technique for telling that voice in my head and what was that, What was that technique? Well, um, I was trying to meditate and I wasn't good at it. Ron had <laughs> suggested that I develop a meditation technique and I was very, you know, I was slowly recovering and I was still quite anxious and jittery and my mind was all over the place. <laughs> um, I read a book by Jack Cornfield about... Um, <laughs> About basically about naming our emotions, you know, naming the demons, he would call it. Yeah. And I couldn't seem to catch a thought for long enough to understand what I was actually feeling. It was just like a clusterfuck of feelings all the time, which was essentially what anxiety was for me. So in, in a whim, I just decided to give that voice of anxiety a name. And I don't know why I called it this, but I called the name of anxiety in my voice, the inner critic, I called it Frank. Bloody Frank. Bloody Frank. And I think it's because it rhymed with F. You know, sorry, it had it started with F and fear starts with F. I think it's because I didn't know anyone called Frank. But I started practicing this technique every time the doubts would come up where I would just say, fuck off, Frank, and get on with it. <laughs> fuck off, Frank. It was that simple. Fuff. And, and there's the secret. I mean, that's it, really. For me, that was really an effective way of just dismissing the and dismantling the power of my inner critic. You know, I want Frank there when I am walking on a precipice with my baby in my arms and Correct. I'm trying to stay safe. That's exactly right. I want Frank there when I'm walking to a 
you know, my car in the car park and my spidey senses, senses prick up because there's someone yeah. following me. Yeah. But I don't want, I don't yeah. want Frank there. 24-7. 24-7 when I'm on stage trying to sing my song for the first time. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There we go. I, I, and that's the whole reason I wrote this book is because I realised these techniques were really simple at the time. And completely. I read the whole book and these were the techniques, <laughs> these are the things that I took away. Although I thought these will resonate with women because this, this is the shit that women struggle with all the time, all the time, the, the you know, the crap, yes. the and stories that we tell and ourselves. our dads and our brothers yes. and our sisters and our aunties and, you know, all of our friends. Like these are human experiences yeah. and I get to, we get to talk to them through this particularly female lens because there is something about the hormones um, of being a female that they say, you know, lends us to have a stronger propensity towards mm. anxiety. And there is something about this generation that we live in and these times that we live in that is accelerating our experience of anxiety. It's not just that we're talking about it more. It's no, like, I agree with you. So, so But learning. you know what, and I, and I think that, you know, as she said before, it's that the thrust of, of your book is that, you know, the power of storytelling is is has and always will be forever and that is what that like by telling these stories you can actually say well it, you find that commonality and you find that whole thing of oh well I could take that I could try that technique or that worked for her or that might work for me and that yeah. that's that's such a that that's that's the story of hope really like and I think that that's what's you know, such a great takeaway from this book. And we're allowed to start small. So people might be, you know, you might be out there and you might want to start your podcast, you're listening to Mel, you see the name Marie Claire, you're like, well, you know, it's everything, everyone's so far ahead of me and everyone's done it before me and oh, how did she get to do that and that voice. You're allowed to say, you know what, I'm going to start small. I've got a voice recorder on my iPhone or on my smartphone. I'm going to just start by putting down a few thoughts yeah. on what might be an interesting conversation to have with someone in my corner of the world, you know, and I'm not going to think about how to upload that on the yeah. internet, <laughs> just little by little by little. And you meet, my experience has been that you do meet your little angels, I'm going to call them, you know, your little helpers along the way, mm. you know, and you don't have to, you don't have to, um, be from the same worlds. You don't have to, you know, be best friends with each other, but we get to meet each other and help each other with our dreams. I did have these other dreams that were calling me, and I, sometimes we don't become aware of our dreams until we notice that we're jealous of someone or something, and that had been my experience. I had seen Jeff Buckley play. I was so blown away by him, and then there was a little part of me that was a little bit jealous, you know, a little bit <laughs> like, I want to be on the road with Jeff Buckley. You know, I want to... <laughs> live that life and that was a clue you know we get these clues about who we're supposed to be in the world and yeah and our feelings are, are often markers of those clues but speaking and speaking of dreams I so said 21 years ago you wrote down I want to write I want to write this book and yeah. here you are and you bloody wild isn't it? <laughs> but you did it you I did, did it. Do it thank you high five me I know but I was scared to tell these stories to be honest at the time and I said I won't do it until I'm really really old but how do you feel now now well, that it's actually out there. Well, yeah, I thought I thought 40 was really, really old, so I said 40. <laughs> um, I am so uh, proud of that young woman who made that promise, and I'm, I'm pretty happy to be able to fulfill that promise on her behalf. Yeah. I meet so many wonderful women in the work that I do, so many wonderful boys, and this song that I wrote, Your Own Kind of Girl, which was about telling the truth about you know these struggles that we have and, and reminding ourselves that we're enough, this is one of the 
songs that comes back. Um, yeah, you know, just the lyrics. People people say to me, "Thank you for writing that song," and and I'm I'm pleased that this is my life's work that I get to tell these stories. You you actually admitted that you um you often find it hard to sing that song. You often choke on you often choke on the words. Yeah, what, why I do. why is that? Um, in the song, I get emotional just thinking about it. But <laughs> in the song, I um, have a part where I talk about being a young woman who was desperate to know that she was more than this. I was so aware that the struggles that I was having were not living my best life, you know, that I was trapped yep. in these stories. And um, sometimes when I try to sing the second verse, and to tell my story out loud with the audience, I look at the audience and <laughs> they are looking back at me and I realise that this dream has been fulfilled. I, They have, they proved to me that I'm more than just that um, terrified person who never thought she could do anything useful in the world. And then I get a little bit emo at Melbourne recently <laughs> when we played it. Um, we were launching a song called Woman and... <laughs> I tried to play it and I think I had about three false starts and I love – and Brisbane, the same happened too. How embarrassment. I think I might have got away with it in Sydney though. Anyway. <laughs> You've mastered it. Mastered it. It is, it is what it is. You know, we are in the business of telling stories and making art and um, – It's a beautiful song. Like the, start, the the opening line of it is chocolate. You've got chocolate on your mouth and I think, you know, man, a whole heap of women would, um, I suppose, feel – shame in 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 that line you know some shame in that line but also that whole like that's that feeling of the food and mm. and and how it shapes it, you know it mm. shapes so many women's destinies or they feel like mm. how they you know how they what they eat and what they become you know that so it should be like mm. and that well obviously you've named the um the book after it which <laughs> is fantastic it's wild it's still wild to me that i um, I, that this book is done. I can see it there in front of you. It's actually done. How and how are you? Do you still have to like fuffle and and foff? <laughs> I was really really fortunate because my my most brutal experience with mental ill health. I really just had the one. I had twenty one years old. I had a complete and total genuine authentic nervous <laughs> breakdown. Yeah, uh, and I didn't need to have another one because what I learnt there allowed me to continue on in the world. Not without fear, but yeah. with a framework to reframe fear. Um, I've had times of enormous grief, enormous um, fear, transition, um, all of those very human things. And I, you know, I'm, I'm, I've had I've had them this year, just this year, <laughs> in writing the book. Um, I go back to these same tools. I foff. I faffle. I learn how to care for myself now. I speak to myself kindly. And I, I understand these things sound really simple, but I go back to that voice of Dr. Claire Weeks. Yeah, like, there's so much to love about this book, Claire, like apart from even just those techniques, but also recognising that people can emerge on the other side and, and actually, and then, and have a, fa- you know, and have a great life. And, um, and 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 find I think it's also like that story about you found what sustains you. You found um, you found the thing that makes you happy, and you and then you and then you went for it. Like and th- those like I mean that sounds quite simplistic, but that's the big that's the big shit of life that mm-hmm. that people you know um, want to be able to achieve. And like and you're a 
um, you're sitting here is a fantastic example of that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't even, you know, here's the thing. Like we've spoken about the tough stuff in this book, right, and we wanted to chat about that because we reckon you sitting out there could find something useful with that. So you've got that now. What we, What's still waiting for you in this book is a love story. Um <laughs> Which, you know, it is it's it is also a love story. I was lucky that I found uh, a chap, a bandmate, who I fell in love with quite early. I can't believe you married the drummer. I married Isn't the drummer, the rule? Guys. You don't marry the drummer. Well, I was really lucky <laughs> to find, you know, I was really, really lucky to find uh, the kind of partner who was absolutely on board with my dreams and I was on board with his. Yeah. You deserved it, girlfriend. Yeah. Well, no, no, not at all. I don't mean that. I mean, he would be a mess without me. It's um, <laughs> that goes without saying. <laughs> what I, what, but I, I was lucky. Anyway, I've, I've rabbited on, but I, I'm, I'm so glad it's out there now, mate. I know. Well, so aren't we all? This is, um, this is, this book is a gift. It is a gift. As are you, gorgeous Claire Bowditch. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Lots of love to all of you. (laughs) Wow. What an inspiration. I really admire Claire's message of self-acceptance and self-love, but also really how she banished all that fear and anxiety and grief to move forward and, of course, write her book, which is going to be a huge help to other women. So Claire Bowditch, she really is her own kind of girl. Thanks so much for listening today, and it'd be really appreciated if you could rate and review as we value your feedback. We have a brand new interview with spectacular women every fortnight, so please subscribe to Finding Fearless with Murray Claire so you never miss an episode. We'll catch you next time.